Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Ukraine's former finance minister, Natalie Jaresko. Natalie has been a CEO. She served as an economic section chief of the U.S. Embassy in Kiev and is currently the executive director of Puerto Rico's Financial Oversight and Management Board. Mr. Resco has been a leading expert on fiscal policy and accountability, especially in Ukraine and Eastern Europe. As Minister of Finance from 2014 to 2016, Natalie secured a $40 billion assistance package for Ukraine from the IMF to stimulate Ukraine's financial growth amid economic crises and geopolitical challenges. Natalie has lived a really interesting life. She grew up in Chicago and you know found her way in Ukraine and is now in Puerto Rico, but her heart is... And she's she's looking at what's happening in Ukraine with the unique perspective. I'm really grateful that Natalie's taken time to be with us today. Thank you for joining us, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. So, Natalie, just briefly for our listeners, could you just tell us how did somebody from Chicago end up in Ukraine and end up becoming finance minister of Ukraine when you were born and bred Chicagoan? And, and how did a red-blooded American like you end up as finance minister of Ukraine? I'm definitely a red-blooded American, but I do come from a Ukrainian heritage. So growing up as a Ukrainian American, I always learned the culture, the traditions, and shared the yearning for freedom that my family shared with me because Ukraine was captured, in essence, a captive nation within the Soviet Union. When I went off to graduate school at Harvard Kennedy School of Government and then eventually landed my first job at the State Department, it was during Perestroika and Glasnost and the, basically the, the end of the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union fell apart, the State Department asked me to go out and be, as you said, the economic section chief at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. It was an incredible honor because I was basically returning to the land of my ancestors, but bringing all of the wealth of what America meant to me and means to the world in terms of democracy and markets uh, to Ukraine. So I spent three years with the embassy, and after being at the embassy for three years, I thought we had kind of made as much progress as we could on diplomacy. And what we needed to do was bricks and mortar. And Western NIS Enterprise Fund was created with $150 million of your and my taxpayer dollars uh, established through USAID to invest in small and medium-sized businesses. For me, that was an opportunity to actually show how our markets function. You can't imagine, but after the Soviet Union collapsed, people really had no idea what a functioning market looked like. I also believe strongly that a middle class was critical to democracy. And until there was a middle class, we would never really have a firm democracy in Ukraine. And so I went into Western NIS Enterprise Fund with the intent, almost of what we would call today social impact investing, to create models of success where businesses employed people, paid their taxes, played a social uh, corporate governance role in their communities. And it worked from time to time, it worked. We created businesses. Things that you can imagine, we invested in bricks manufacturing and candy manufacturing and supermarkets. We were serving Ukraine's market of 45 million people. And after several years, we did it well enough that our team spun out and created a private equity fund, Horizon Capital, 
where as a founder and the CEO, I was responsible for fundraising private money. So we could switch from going from government money to private money. So the USAID money served as a platform, managing at that time about $600 million of monies. And the second of the two revolutions that I lived through in Ukraine, the Revolution of Dignity occurred in 2013, ended in 14 with the former president fleeing to Moscow. And as a result, the beginning of what we're experiencing right now happened. Russia illegally occupied and annexed Crimea in 2014 and then occupied and financed terrorism in eastern Ukraine, what we call the occupied territories. At that point, the economy was collapsing and I got invited to be Minister of Finance in December of 14 to deal with a collapsing banking system, a collapsing economy, an empty treasury, and that balance of payments challenge that you mentioned, raising $40 billion to close the gap. IMF negotiations, bilateral, multilateral, as well as uh, sovereign debt restructuring. Why is Vladimir Putin, why has he invaded Ukraine So I think there are many reasons, but I will focus on two. One is that Kyiv, Ukraine, has a very uh, important place in the myth that is his state. The way he defines Russia and the Russian Empire and Russia as a people and nation, he has to build it. He builds it. He chose to build it on the beginning of Ukraine's history in Kyiv. So one is control over Kiev is something that is deep in his existence, in his mythology, in his definition of who and what Russia is. I think secondarily, but related, is that Ukraine was becoming a successful example on his border of freedom. And I mean freedom of speech, freedom of media, freedom of religion, freedom of sexual orientation. It is a true democracy. I used to live there and call it a democracy on steroids because we were constantly voting out one president to another president. It, for him, is an incredible risk to see a Slavic nation on his border, whom he believes to be part of his origin myth, to be successfully proving that you do not have to live under the autocracy that he has created and the lack of freedom that he requires, that he instills in Russia. You know, I'm I'm Catholic and I've been to Ukraine three times. I, I know enough about it to be dangerous. But one of the things I've learned in some of my work when I was an elections monitor, I'm, I'm on the board of the Western NIS Enterprise Fund. This is after your time. And I can attest to it's an amazing and unbelievably successful fund. And I think helped transform the Ukrainian economy and helped develop entire industries from zero. So what you did was just unbelievable. But one of the things I've noticed, I think since post-2014, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the West, and I think as it reflects a little bit of a blind spot, because I think we're sort of, a, especially among the policy elites, are, are fairly unreligious, is the recognition of the Orthodox the Ukrainian Orthodox Church as a standalone Orthodox Church. One of the things that shocked me when I went to a church on Sunday in a secondary city in Ukraine, I think in 20, I'm going to say in 2018, it may have been 2019, was a priest from the Russian Orthodox Church standing outside a Ukrainian Orthodox Church, screaming into a megaphone, causing almost like a riot, and trying to interrupt the church service of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And so President Poroshenko, one of his legacies was getting the ecumenical patriarch of Istanbul, I think if I'm I'm capturing this correctly, 
to recognize a specific standalone Ukrainian Orthodox Church, and that this is in some ways partially a existential threat in some ways to Putin in some degree. Is that is that a fair statement? Am I capturing what I'm? I mean, you, you're, you know what I'm talking about, but I'm not sure most of our listeners know what I'm talking about. Absolutely, and it, and it follows on from what I said about Putin's myth, because the Orthodox Church is actually organized on a national basis. There's a Romanian Orthodox Church, a Polish Orthodox Church, a Georgian. And the fact of the matter is that once Ukraine became an independent sovereign nation, again, in 1991, it had every reason to have its own Orthodox Church. But the Russian Orthodox Church cannot stand that fact, that concept that Ukrainians would have their own church. I remind everyone that last summer, President Putin published an essay basically denying the existence of Ukraine, Ukrainians. In his speech when he announced the invasion earlier last week, he said the same. He doesn't acknowledge that Ukraine, Ukrainians as a state, as a nation, as a church, as a people, as a language, have the right to exist. And that's why this is more than what some thought about NATO, NATO encroachment. That is all part of it, but that is secondary to his existential, as you just said, existential challenge, which is Ukraine is separate, sovereign, independent, different, and it's different in ways that he just cannot accept. It builds on what you were saying about how it's a threat, that, that Ukraine is a threat to the Russian vision that Putin is is pushing, if you will. Let me just ask another question, then I want to talk about some of the economic issues. In your mind, in another life, couldn't Russia and Ukraine get along? Isn't that what was sort of envisioned in the early 90s, is they, these could be individual standalone states? I mean, you lived in Ukraine for, I don't know, 20 years, so you know the region pretty darn well. There was no reason why they could not live as respectful neighbors. Before 2014, Russia was probably the single largest trading partner of Ukraine. It no longer is. The relationship culturally, historically is close, and and many people have relatives on both sides. There was no reason why they couldn't live with respect for one another. I think what changed is Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin sees the world in a different way. Where Boris Yeltsin was hoping to join the larger democratic world, join the larger Europe, that, that is not Putin's goal, never has been. You know, to step away from Ukraine for a moment, he, inv- he invaded Georgia in 2008, he invaded Ukraine in 2014, he destroyed Chechnya within his own country, carpet bombed it, he has destroyed much of Syria, he has interfered in elections, he has interfered in Brexit, he has killed his opposition leaders on the streets of London with polonium, with bullets in Berlin, This isn't about NATO. This is about his vision of the entire world and who he and Russia is as compared to who we, what I'll call the liberal democratic order built after World War II are. And they are incompatible. You know, they've said that, you know, Russia has built up, let's call it like a financial fortress to withstand sanctions. How strong is that? You used to be a finance minister. You know the region really well. What kind of a financial house of bricks has he built? He has built, and they have you know, several rainy day funds. They have hundreds of billions of dollars of reserves at the central bank. And he has a noose over Europe with regard to most in other parts of the world with the oil and gas uh, integration that he's built. I think that this morning or late last night's sanctions on the central bank reserve from the United States were extraordinary in breaking down that fortress. The United States sanctioned not only the Central Bank of Russia, but also the Ministry of Finance and the uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund, the, the investment fund. So 
I think they have captured all of the assets. And with this sanction, with this freezing of assets abroad, the central bank will not be able to support the ruble. And you saw that this morning, the ruble dropped, devalued about 40%. You see there are increasing runs on the bank that without being able to support the ruble, the devaluation will really be painful. Uh, You've seen two things coming out of that already today. One, they have passed laws that no one can transfer currency out of the country because they need to keep whatever foreign reserves that they have in country safe. And so that means that all the elites, all the so-called oligarchs are going to be unable to get their money out. And two, he has spent what I understand is about a billion dollars already today in one day trying to support the ruble and keeping it from a free fall. So it is expensive and it is painful. That fortress can't last forever. That said, we need to go farther. Do we have other sanction options options we could take? And if so, what are they? Absolutely. And number one, we need to blanket sanction all the state-owned banks in Belarus and Russia. Let's not forget that Belarus yesterday was sending bombs and missile, missiles to Ukraine and troops. So this is no longer just Russia, Russia and Belarus. Belarus yesterday after their, what I well, many will say it was an artificial referendum, eliminating or, or ceasing their clear free set status, which means Russia can now base nuclear weapons in Belarus on the border of the EU and on the border of NATO. So we need to sanction all the banks. Uh, we need to sanction the oil and gas companies. And I know that's painful. I hear in every one of President Biden's remarks his desire to keep this from bringing pain to the American people in, at the gas pump. I get it. But I would argue, and I've argued <laughs> every day for the last five days, that the pain that our economies are going to suffer if we lose this battle is much greater than whatever extra we're going to pay at the gas pumps. This is the battle for the liberal world order that has enabled us to build the great U.S. business community, the, the commercial sector that we have. It's based on a system of rule of law and international agreements and use of diplomacy. It is not based on a system, and we cannot make money. We cannot be successful if it is based on you know, who the greater power is, chaos, conflict, war, international war crimes, all of that is incompatible with our ability to be a global business leaders. So I think the short-term losses are, are minimal compared to the potential end of the system that has allowed us to prosper. One of the things that's been called upon, Natalie, is to, if the government of Ukraine falls to protect its seats at the IMF, the World Bank, the United Nations, the EBRD, when you were finance minister, you, I'm sure you were on the board of governors of the IMF, the World Bank, and the EBRD, among others. Could you talk a little bit about what, what in your mind that looks like? Could you just, you know, I hope the government does not fall, and I hope that we maintain an independent Ukraine. But if that were to happen, what are the sort of steps we need to do to protect the equities of, the de- of a democratic Ukraine and the, and, the, and the interests of the Ukrainian people? I'll be honest, Dan, I have not thought that through, and I hate to think of it. I believe Ukraine will prevail. If you've seen the last five days, you know, despite everyone's estimates about the stronger army, Ukrainians are fighting for their homeland, for their freedom, and they're fighting fiercely. If it were to happen, God forbid, and again, I do not want to even contemplate it, there is no question that we should not allow for a puppet government to have access to those chairs, those institutions, that finance, and everything would have to be shut down for any puppet government put in place. I would expect and suspect that a government abroad would be established if, God forbid, the government in Ukraine is somehow decapitated, which is the goal of, of, of Putin, and only they should have access and, and represent Ukraine on a going forward basis. But I, again, I, I believe that right now our job is to make sure that that never happens. 
I agree. Okay. Tell me about what, so I know we're, you know, this is a rapidly evolving situation. We're recording this on Monday, 28th of February. This will be released on Wednesday, the 2nd of March. Could you just talk a little bit about what you're, obviously this is not something it's, 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 you're, you know, you, these are your friends, these are your family. So this is not, you know, an easy conversation. I really appreciate you being on, but what are you seeing? What are you hearing? So give you a sense of how my days go. I wake up as early as I can to speak to and work with all my friends and colleagues that are on the ground still in Kiev. So this morning, you know, I have, I'm chairperson of Aspen Institute Kiev, and we have a small number of employees, but almost every single one of them remains in Kiev and or other locations in Ukraine. Men are, are, are going into the civil defense. Women and children are in bunkers at night, in bomb shelters. Those that are separated from their elderly parents, and I spent half the morning trying to get food to an elderly grandmother in a village in the Northeast, which has been very hard hit because the family in Kiev can't get to them. Another family, her parents were in Volnovakha in Donbass and the house was bombed. Her mother passed away yesterday and her father is wounded in the house. And we are trying to find a way to get him to medical help. It is surreal at a level that, you know, I grew up, my parents were refugees of World War II. My parents were, you know, in the displaced person camps in Germany. And I remember my grandmother saying, you know, that they had to eat potato peels because they couldn't find food. They ate people's garbage and, and the rest of the food that they left over. I never thought in my worst nightmares that this would be happening in Ukraine. And so I spend my mornings with that. And then I spend most of the day doing interviews, trying to get the word out. My most serious effort right now is to ask for full and entire divestment of all investments in Russia both public and private. I congratulate BP and Shell for their announcements, but it's not enough. There are a dozen or more U.S. banks. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal today about Citi, and I love Citi, but you know, $10 billion business in Russia, get out now. We need to boycott trade, both imports and exports. We are indirectly financing the bombs that are hitting Ukrainians on the head. EU, UK, and the United States trade about seven, by about $700 million a day in imports. That's $700 million going into that economy to finance those cruise missiles. So right now, my focus is on trying to get full divestment, full uh, boycott of the Russian market, because I believe that in today's day, when we talk about ESG principles over and over, well, social principles and governance principles apply specifically to countries that are massive human rights violators. That's here. Massive war crime violators. That's here. There is no reason why any company should be remaining in that marketplace. And I urge shareholders, stakeholders to do the same. Urge companies to, to divest and to stop their businesses there, to stop importing Russian products and exporting. And if not, boycott the company. Enough is enough. I'll give me the last part of it. I stay awake long enough to get through dawn in Kiev with the time difference. I, so I get to about 5 or 6 a.m. to see whether or not, you know, we've gotten through another night or not. And then I sleep for a few hours between like 6 in the morning, 5 in the morning and 8 so Natalie, if I'm if I'm listening right now and I'm living, I'm in a comfortable place in the United States or elsewhere, what can I do right now as an individual citizen? What are the steps an individual citizen can take today on the 28th of February or the 2nd of March? What can I do? 
Number one, write to every one of your congressional representatives, senators and representatives and the White House and write to them every single day. Tell them you care what happens. Tell them you stand with Ukraine and tell them you want massive sanctions. Congress is in session this week. We need the Congress to adopt even more radical sanctions, in particular against the elites, the political elite and the financial elite in Russia. Second, uh, I, I urge everyone who can to provide and help support the humanitarian efforts. We have a half a million refugees already on the Polish side and more coming every day. Any organization you believe in is there. World Central Kitchen, Jose Andres, is there. CARE is there. UN Human Rights is there. You name it, International Red Cross is there. Ukrainian organizations, there are, there are dozens of people trying to help. These are primarily women and children. Men are not being allowed to go. They're all being conscripted between the ages of 18 and 60. They are leaving with one suitcase, with their babies in their arms, and running to nowhere. So humanitarian aid, if you can help, please help. Obviously, I urge everyone in your letters to Congress, and if you're willing, to support further military assistance to Ukraine. Ukrainians are willing to fight themselves. They're not asking for American boots on the ground. Help them defend themselves. Press Congress, press your, your, your president, press for more military support for Ukraine urgently. At the same time, if you'd like to help, there are a multitude of organizations that collect funds, including the National Bank of Ukraine, directly to support the military. I cannot tell you how much it means to me, but I'm a believer, so pray. Pray for Ukraine, pray for Ukrainians. This is David and Goliath. This is right, good, dominating over evil. We have a singular chance not to repeat the mistakes we made in World War II. We let one madman go too far, too long. We cannot let it happen again. Thank you, Natalie. That was really powerful. I 100% subscribe to what you just said. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 